when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion of what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker, standing in for Sebastian Payne, who is getting married in Italy this weekend. In this episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's final full week in power, which included plus a change, a House of Commons defeat. And we'll also be looking at the small question of who's going to be our Prime Minister next week. Plus, the changing of the guard in Brussels, with a new President of the European Commission confirmed. What does it tell us about the balance of power in Europe? And what might it mean for Brexit? I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Pickard, our Chief Political Correspondent, and Miranda Green, our Deputy Comment Editor, as well as Ben Hall, our Europe Editor, and Alex Barker, soon to depart from Brussels after an eight-year stint in the European Union capital. Thank you all for joining us. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, do subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also love positive reviews too. So this week, Theresa May went out. She started, really. She went out with a House of Commons defeat on a fairly arcane piece of legislation around the Northern Ireland executive. And basically, to cut a long story short, what we saw was a load of Conservative MPs moving to require Parliament to meet in October to prevent a future Prime Minister, probably Boris Johnson, closing down Parliament and pushing ahead with the no deal exit. Jim Pickard, this was described by some people as Theresa May's last defeat and also Boris Johnson's first defeat. How significant was it? It kind of came out of nowhere in a sense in that we'd seen rumblings around all this stuff for the last couple of weeks. But the last time this issue came to the comments, which was about a week ago with Dominic Grieve in the forefront, there was a sort of small technical victory by only one vote. But this time, the victory was by a margin of over 40. And so I think that did come as a bit of a surprise. I mean, the Tory whips were worried about it. The MPs were on a three-line whip. But I think a lot of them concluded that this was the moment to take a bit of a stand. And so you had Margot James resigning as a relatively junior culture minister in order to do this. And you had a huge number of abstentions, including our old familiar friends in the Gorkwood squad, as it's called. And so Theresa May issued a kind of withering statement saying, well, I'm not going to sack these people that abstain, but maybe my successor can do so. But secretly, do we think she was that fussed, given that we think she doesn't really want no deal Brexit either? Well, that's a very good question. You hear people around us saying that she hasn't seen her premiership founder on the rocks of opposition to no deal, only to allow another Conservative Prime Minister to deliver a no-deal exit. So we'll see how that plays out. But Miranda Green, how serious do you think the opposition will be to no-deal in the autumn when we come back after the recess? Do you think some of these people who voted against the government this week would be prepared to bring down their own government to stop no-deal happening? Well, that's the main question, really, because they've clearly found a mechanism, as Jim rightly said, almost by surprise, they found a mechanism to try and ensure that the incoming Prime Minister can't just cancel Parliament and suspend it until he pushes through no deal. 
But we still don't know whether Parliament can actually find the right mechanism to stop no deal. So <laughs> they've stopped the suspension of Parliament, but not necessarily the sort of apocalyptic scenario that some of them think no deal would be. I do think that the scale of the Tory rebellion was very interesting. You had 17 Tories actually voting for the rebel amendment. That's quite a high number. You had, as Jim has said, those very senior members of the cabinet abstaining, Philip Hammond and Gork himself and Clark. And then you had a few resignations as well of other ministers. So it looked as if they were really gearing up for a fight. And I think when we sort of think about what might happen in the autumn before that crucial 31st of October deadline, I think it is going to be a really bumpy ride. And whereas previously you've seen the very skeptic wing of the Tory party, the European Research Group, being very assertive in making sure that they drag whoever's in government towards their side of the how we do Brexit argument, it may be that you're actually seeing the beginning of the softer Brexit side of the Tory party finding a bit of guts to also play hardball. And I think that's what we're really starting to see. And I think that it's going to be a very, very strange few months, in fact. Well, it's the mirror image, as you say, that Theresa May had the awkward squad on the Eurosceptic wing of the party and Boris Johnson's awkward squad, or as Jim called it, the Gorkwood squad, come from the other side of the party. Um, Jim, I spoke to Keith Simpson, one of those who rebelled this week. It's the first time he'd voted against the government in this 22 years as an MP. And he said that it's like alcohol. Once you've had your first drink, you keep coming <clears throat> back for more. How serious do you think this is going to be? They're going to love it, aren't they, these people, causing problems for this new prime minister? Absolutely. And and I love your point about the problem on both sides of the party. The numbers are so similar. You think about that final vote on the withdrawal agreement back in, was it March, where there was, I think, 33 ERG, hardcore Eurosceptic Tory MPs. And then the math yesterday, once you sort of whittle down the MPs who were on a slips or pairings, or it looked like they were abstaining, but they weren't, the number came down to 36. So incredible parallels on the Eurosceptic wing and on the Europhile wing of the party. And these people mean business in terms of preventing Boris Johnson or whoever the Prime Minister is from doing no-deal Brexit. But as I wandered the corridors yesterday in search of chat and banter with MPs, I met one of Boris Johnson's closest allies in Parliament and he was making the case, he was claiming verbatim, he said, we're not losing any sleep over this because his point is that only the Prime Minister can seek a delay to Article 50 and the Prime Minister will be Boris Johnson, making the point that you need legislation to block no deal and what form can that legislation take? What would they actually pin it to? And, you know, other supporters of Boris Johnson were popping up saying, you know, at the end of the day, you can only stop Brexit or seriously delay it now by revoking and no one's going to be doing that. Well, I suspect Parliament may find a way, despite what Boris Johnson's people say, but we'll find out soon enough. Miranda, another thing that happened this week was, as I mentioned earlier, it was Theresa May's final full week in power. And she made a farewell speech doing a sort of tour de raison of the state of British politics. And she complained about the lack of compromise, the very hard edge to political debate these days, the failure to reach out across party lines. What did you make of that speech? I thought that it was really pushing it, actually, for somebody who's been in control, well, in power, if not in control, I should say, for three years to then complain about the state of British politics. Because it's true that towards the end of her premiership, in a slightly desperate way, she tried to reach out to the Labour front bench to find some sort of consensus through the middle on Brexit. But actually, she sort of set off on this journey by imposing very harsh red lines on how Britain would renegotiate its way out of the EU that made compromise across the aisle, as they say in America, 
almost impossible. So I thought it was rather sort of self-serving and odd. But the problem is, is that that epigram that all political careers end in failure, they all end with somebody trying to justify themselves, actually, and trying to rewrite the history of their time in office after they failed. I thought it was really in that spirit. And I also think it's really interesting, just where we're on this subject of her legacy, that already, even before she's out of number 10, one of the most significant and cheering changes is her own ministers in her own cabinet deciding to wipe the slate clean on her immigration policy, which I think has been one of the worst aspects of her premiership. And we've had both of the front runners in the Tory leadership campaign and the Home Secretary saying they're going to wipe the slate clean on the numerical target on immigration, which would be a very positive change. So I think it's not a great exit from the scene. Jim, her farewell tour, it just seems to me, has been a little bit low wattage. And Rana's just describing this speech this week, but she did a speech in Scotland on the Union last week, which didn't really create many waves. She's sort of going out rather with a whimper than a bang, isn't she? Well, she's never been the most dynamic speaker or inspirational, motivational speaker. So in one sense, nothing's changed. I think what we've seen is this sort of desperate rush for her to squeeze out some last minute legacy announcements. So obviously there was that attempt to get billions of pounds for schools, which Philip Hammond resisted because he wants to preserve the Tories' fiscal reputation. There was that last minute attempt to, was it some kind of unit for addressing imbalances in society or whatever it was called, literally five days before <laughs> she departs. She wants to have this legacy. which was just impossible there. You know, she's not really going out with a bang. She's going out with a whimper. On a total side note, I do agree with Miranda that most political careers end with failure. But I was just thinking the other day, Vince Cable, just remember he lost his seat in 2015, mm. comes back in 2017 <laughs> in a slightly, again, low wattage way. He's presided over the resurrection of the Lib Dem. So he is the exception to the rule, I think. Yes. And of course, the success of Vince Cable being chosen next Monday. But as you say, Vince going out with a bang. And Miranda, just finally, the small question of who's going to be our prime minister next mm. week. Uh, Jim's already created a hostage to fortune by saying it's definitely going to be Boris. I assume you agree with that. What do you think we've learnt about Boris Johnson during the course of this month-long campaign? Well, I think the main thing we're all going to have to get used to is the idea that he makes it up as he goes along, because all sorts of pledges have been flung out during this leadership campaign, not least actually on Brexit. I mean, this week, both leadership contenders suddenly started to say that they would want the entire backstop taken out of the deal with the EU before trying to get that through again, if they were going to attempt to get through some version of the May deal. So there's been a lot of making things up on the hoof. If he does that in government, it will be considerably destabilising. I think we don't really know yet which of the Borises we're going to get, or will we get a combination? You know, will we get the one that they keep promising us, who once he's won, will seek to unify and will govern as he did in London for all in a very sort of one nation way? Or will we get the Boris who's got Ian Duncan Smith as part of his key inner circle at the moment? Will we get the Boris Johnson who is rumoured to be about to bring in Jacob Rees-Mogg to a job in the Treasury? I think it's really, really uncertain. And Jim, do you think there were any illuminating moments during this campaign or did it simply tell us what we already knew about Boris Johnson? I think probably three things stick in the memory. The first one is obviously the incident where the police were called to the altercation in the flat he shared at the time with his partner, Carrie Simmons. He was obviously a, a bit thrown by that. He went wobbly for quite a few days and went to ground, really doesn't want to talk about it, which on one level is fair enough. But there was that just sense that there's this vulnerability around his private life. The second one is obviously the moment with the ambassador, Sir Kim Darroch, 
and his failure to proactively defend our man in Washington. Mm. Yes, it was harder for him to back Sir Kim because we expect him to win and it was easier for Hunt because we expect Hunt to lose. But it didn't exactly show massive moral fibre, in my humble opinion. And then third, seemingly trivial, the kipper moment (laughs) where he waved (laughs) a kipper at a bunch of Tory party members at Hustings earlier this week and claimed that it had to have an ice pack attached to it because of European rules. And various journalists, including George, established in a matter of seconds or minutes that this was actually a British rule and nothing to do with the EU. And, you know, again, it just smacks of the old Boris Johnson, the journalist being cavalier with facts and all the rest of it. I want to just pick up one thing Miranda said earlier about whether having IDS on board points to a kind of right-wing administration. I mean, to be fair to IDS, remember that he does have a huge interest in social justice. I don't think he is unreconstructed, free markety, unpleasant right winger. Just a personal note there. It's more on Brexit, actually, whether you take that as an indication, you know. But I think he'll be hardline on Brexit, but he could still be one nation with people like IDS in, in his team. Which is essentially the Boris Johnson message about his own premiership, hard on Brexit, soft on everything else. And with that, thanks very much. And Miranda, especially, thank you for being so lucid, because I know you might be a little bit hungover after your appearance and the after-show party on the last ever episode of This Week with Andrew Neil, And for those of you listening today, if you haven't seen Miranda in action, I suggest you go and watch it on Catch Up on the iPlayer. Maybe with some uh, earplugs in before you listen to the singing, <laughs> which was truly terrible. So, Alex Barker, you were in Strasbourg this week for the anointment of Ursula von der Leyen by the European Parliament. What does this tell us about the German grip or otherwise on the European Union? Well, there's a lot of grip in the sense that we have a German at the top of the commission for the first time in 50 odd years. For many decades, they've been quite happy to work through proxies. You've seen a lot of Luxembourgers over the years, but this is the first time a a German's in place. And it was quite a close call. the, The vote was down to a nine MEP majority, which is as close as it's ever been, really. And she had quite a job on her hands to try and corral these slightly chaotic party groups behind her because the leadership isn't particularly strong in the parliament at the moment in any of the groups. And a lot of them were resentful for various reasons. Some of them were upset that they didn't have a Spitzen candidate, one of the lead candidates from the election. Others were upset that she started sounding a lot more left-wing than they were hoping for. She's a centre-right EPP, European People's Party candidate, but was making a lot of overtures to the socialists and the liberals. And you saw a lot of lying and treachery in the (laughs) run-up and the vote itself. And actually, it sounds like she lost a lot of MEPs on her own side and was pushed over the line by the five-star movement in Italy and the polls ruling Law and Justice Party MEPs. And that wasn't the plan. Mm. Now, Ben Hall, you're a former Paris bureau chief. Alex has just been describing how we have a first German running the European Commission for 50 years. But a lot of people said this actually, the shake-up on the big jobs in Europe was a victory for Macron in France. It certainly was a victory for Macron in France. And he's obviously got a German as a commission president, but it's the kind of German that they like in the Elysee Palace. She has a sort of French conception, I think, of Europe as being a power. She, as a former defence minister, has a strategic view of Europe's place in the world, which not all Germans do. And they're hoping that she will push some of those things that the French are keen to push, you know, industrial policy, 
possibly bolstering the Eurozone, although she was pretty guarded on a lot of that stuff. And the one place where she's been quite explicit already is the green agenda, you know, quite ambitious targets on emissions reductions. So I think they're very pleased with that. And obviously, they managed to get in Christine Lagarde as well as president of the European Central Bank. So pretty pleased all round, I would have thought. Ursula von der Leyen's got lots of things on her plate. But of course, Brexit's one of the first things that will be coming up. Do you think that her appointment as Commission President will change the way the EU approaches the question of Brexit in the coming weeks? No, for quite a few reasons. I mean, firstly, she's actually only going to be in office from November 1st. And I think we'll see the big swell in tension well before then. Secondly, the Commission ultimately works to the guidelines that were laid down by the member states and were so advanced in this process. And the consensus around what's acceptable or not has so ossified here that it's extremely hard to move that. And I think it would only really make a difference in terms of her perspective, instincts, when it comes to the unanswered questions that we're going to face in the months and years to come. And there, her instincts will be important. She was partly educated in the UK. She's had a softer line, perhaps, than some other European politicians who were in the frame for the top job. But it's pretty untested at the moment. And we don't really know what she's going to be like. And she has a very um, small team of confidants who've been with her, some of them all the way from her days in Lower Saxony. She's quite hard to read at the moment. And I think it's a kind of work in progress for everyone in Brussels. And Ben, Alex has covered in detail for the last number of years how the European Union has viewed the way that the British have handled the Brexit negotiations. It was brought back into focus again by a BBC Panorama documentary this week. And we had Timmermans, the vice president of the commission, saying that Britain behaved like dad's army. What did you make of that stuff? What it did for me, that Panorama programme, was just really bring out the very, very steep learning curve that the British government had gone through to arrive at the point where they are now, only for a new government to come in, which is presumably going to have to do the same thing. Well, possibly with an even steeper learning curve, Indeed. given the fact it's Boris Johnson. And with far less time to do it in with the clock ticking, as Michel Barnier kept on saying. So I found that Panorama did that very well. It sort of caught that chaotic learning process and the almost complete about turn of the Theresa May government. But it is a sort of depressing prospect to be back at square one. Ben, you've covered European politics for many years, and it's a trivial thing. But you saw Boris Johnson this week at the final Conservative Party hustings in London, holding aloft a kipper from the Isle of Man, in brackets, not a member of the European Union, claiming this was all down to European bureaucracy. And of course, it turned out it wasn't at all. Does that matter? Do you think? Or is it a sign of some quite worrying things to come? You know, the classic old Boris trope is his stock in trade as the Brussels correspondent for The Telegraph. I think it will confirm in the eyes of many people in Europe that he is cavalier with the truth and not to be totally trusted. And it's a sort of cheap shot that isn't really becoming of somebody who's about to become prime minister in the critical moment that Britain is now in. So I don't think it will have done him any favours. Alex, does it resonate at all in Brussels or is it just more of the same, really? I think they would expect this kind of thing from Boris. I've been doing a kind of uh, tour recently around the institutions and expectations are rock bottom in terms of what the next prime minister will bring is a constituency that worry that even if a Boris Johnson administration wants to engage, wants to do a deal, that there'll be some leaders in Europe who don't really want to 
reward the person they see as Britain's Trump. And it's going to be a very difficult negotiation coming up. And for it to move into a space where a deal is possible, you're going to have to see iron discipline on the UK side in terms of communication, in terms of the kind of people they pick to handle this. A lot of the people here are as interested in the civil servants that are going to be appointed to run this as they are the politicians and the cabinet. And the first two months will really be critical. What's Michel Barnier's role in this in the last few weeks before the new commission takes office? He is still the chief Brexit negotiator. It's still the same people, Cardra, Juncker at the top, up to October 31st. They are still the folks in charge. So if there is a negotiation, it will be with Barnier. His team are ready to play with new ideas. I think if Boris Johnson convinces them that he is willing and game and has the discipline to go for a negotiated deal, there are ways that you can restructure the withdrawal agreement they're looking at. There are new bits of political pyrotechnics that you can add to this deal to try and make it sellable in the UK. And I think they're willing to do it. But they need to be convinced that they've got a real partner on the other side. And of course, Ben, a lot of this will come down not to what people are saying in Brussels, but what people are saying in Berlin and Paris. There's been some speculation that Emmanuel Macron's had enough and he will say, come October 31st, that's it. Kick the Brits out. Do you think he's likely to do that? He'll be sorely tempted to do that. I think at the end of the day, it will come down to a view, not so much of punishing Britain, but actually whether he punishes Ireland. And would a decision like that end up really causing critical damage to the Irish economy, which is why I think they're getting a bit alarmed that the Irish perhaps aren't doing enough to prepare for a no deal. But I think that will be the thing that will stay his hand, actually. The EU have to show solidarity with Ireland to a certain extent, and so can they push Britain over the edge. Mm. And Alex, finally, you're about to leave Brussels after how many years have you been out there? Seven? Eight years. Eight years. years, So you're leaving Brussels. Now, you must be fed up with Brexit. What's the mood like in Brussels? They must be absolutely sick to the back teeth of it. Right now, probably not as much as you think because it's been so off their radar and agenda. They're not following it in the UK as a lot of us are. And so I think the frustrations will again come to the fore when they are dealing with a new prime minister and we're going to have that moment of crisis again, probably in September or early October. They are fed up. The patience has gone. The threshold for a new extension is much higher than it was. And they do feel more prepared and resigned to the idea of a no-deal exit. Obviously, that comes with a lot of trouble for this side as well as the UK. But they are pretty pessimistic at the moment. And Alex, someone else who's leaving Brussels, of course, is uh, Betnoir of the British press, Martin Selmayr, the Secretary General of the European Commission. What do you think he's going to be doing next? Well, he's been telling colleagues he wants to spend more time with the law students he's been teaching in Austria. <laughs> Do you believe him? Uh, possibly. I mean, for a little while, you know, he might want to take a bit of heat out of his reputation. I don't think he'll want to take a commission post out in the world somewhere, you know, ambassador to London, that kind of thing. I'm not quite sure he's convinced that's the next step for him. But um, he's been a remarkable force here who has been this kind of hybrid between a civil servant and a politician and probably the most powerful guy in town. And you can feel the kind of vacuum now in the commission now that he's saying he's going next week. And it will be a bit harder for Ursula von der Leyen to manage that transition, possibly as a result. And finally, Ben, you've been a student of European commissions that have come and gone. How would you see Martin Selmayr 
his role in the European Commission. Is, has he been the most effective or most powerful Secretary General since the days of Pascal Lamy and the Delors Commission? And how do you assess the Juncker Commission generally? I think he clearly has been, as Alex was saying, because he's played that kind of quasi-political role and he's obviously been very active with journalists in terms of getting his message out occasionally to a devastating effect. I suppose, in a way, you might look back on Zellmeyer and think that he kept the show on the road to a certain degree for Juncker. Juncker clearly needed somebody who was going to be a kind of chief executive as to really run the show day to day, hour by hour, and Zellmeyer performed that function. I think we'll probably look back on the Juncker five-year term and think it was better than we would have expected at the time. It's obviously been dominated to a large degree by Brexit, and that will no doubt be to his great regret. But I think all in all, they've done a pretty good job. And Alex, very finally, you've um, had your last week down in Strasbourg. What sort of cuisine did you enjoy in your final trip down there? <laughs> Some very, very fine uh, Alsace uh, cuisine. You saw the wisdom of the treaty or writers on a sunny July afternoon in that town. But certainly over my eight years here, you have seen the power of the parliament, which has been creeping uh, on and on for the last couple of decades, really grow. As a journalist, you're having to pay a lot more attention to the political parties and groups and the goings on in that institution, even though they've taken a bit of a knock by losing out on the spits and candidate. I suspect the idea might be back for the dead in five years' time, but uh, let's see. And that's it for this episode. Thank you to Jim, Miranda, Ben and Alex for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Salome Paladze. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.